The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, I'm going to actually read this morning's scripture kind of as we go through uh, the sermon this morning. So I wanted to take, take that and just unpack it as, as part of the way we work through our text. So I will be doing our scripture reading for us this morning as we get into it here. Um, but we have been, one of the things I said in our call to worship is that we're talking about uh, this question, where, where in your life are you guarding against hope? Where are you feeling like it's just too risky, it would be too risky for you to dare to let yourself hope? That's the passage we're going to unpack this morning. So when I was growing up, when I was about 16 years old, we had a cat named Saki, like after the, the Japanese drink, Saki. And Saki was older than I was. So Saki was born before, before I was born, and when I was 16 years old, Saki was still around. And I remember that she got very sick, and my parents sat us down and said, she's, she's old, she's had a good run, what a great pet, but uh, we think the most merciful thing right now would be to, you know, Put her out of her misery, and so they took her to the vet. And I remember just I'm 16. I haven't had a lot of experience with death. I haven't had a lot of experience with loss. And I weep, and it's that weeping, the grief that you feel that just just feels like you've just been kind of hollowed out on the inside. You know that you know that feeling. So I cry, and mom comes home, and she's walking down the sidewalk, and she's carrying a very much alive sake. Because it turns out, there was a miracle drug for whatever it was that was wrong with her, and it was like a resurrection had happened. We were, we were over the moon about the fact that this cat that once was dead was now alive again, you know? And so, about nine months later, Saki got very sick again. And the parents say, listen... She's had a really good run, you know that nine lives thing, I think, we, I think we're there, and so off they go to put her down again, and I sit in the living room, and I weep again with almost as much intensity as the first time, and mom comes home and walking down the sidewalk, she's carrying a very much alive sake, only this time... When I saw that cat, we were done. I had, I had no more. That cat lived, in fact, Saki became that cat at that point. That cat lived another, almost another year before finally making that third and final voyage across the Rainbow Bridge. And... The feeling that I had as a kid was, I've grieved you twice. 
and I'm done. That's it. I'm at my capacity. The question I want to ask us is, what made me draw that line? What made me draw that line with that cat? Because you do this. We all do this. We, we manage grief. We manage what we're willing to feel, and we reach a point where we say, I'm not doing that anymore, and I'm not going to be let down again. I've, 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 you start to feel like a sucker at a certain point. And so the question is, where in your life are you trying to curb that pesky power called hope? And when we say, I really don't want to get my hopes up, what are we trying to control? What are we trying to avoid when we say, I'm, I'm just not going to get my hopes up? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ calls believers to live lives that are marked with hope. In fact, it's one of the big three, right? Three remain after everything else, and that is faith and hope and love. I've said this before, but Christians are called to be eternal optimists because we have reason to be. This kind of hope that every sad thing is going to come untrue. And for many of us, what that means is we have to walk through some sort of deep sorrow now and still hope. And that is hard, hard to do. And sometimes we might even feel infringed upon to say, who is Jesus to insist on that? Who's Jesus to awaken hope in me? As we look at the life of Jesus, we see somebody who doesn't just awaken hope, but he fights for our hearts to be filled with hope. Because there's a consequence if we keep hope at bay. What happens when we distance ourselves from hope? What happens to our relationship with God? What happens to our relationships with others? What happens is we end up living lives of reactionary self-protection. And we start to anticipate disappointment. We try to head it off at the pass and put ourselves in a safe position. And on a spiritual level, what we end up doing is we end up saying to the author of our faith that we intend to actually live lives of guarded caution when it comes to trusting him. And so today's scripture raises the question, what are you guarding against? Where in your life are you guarding against because when we guard against hope, we're telling God we, we don't trust him to lead us through our pain. But here's the thing. Sometimes what it means to follow Christ is that sometimes before he leads us out of our sorrow, he leads us deeper into it. And that's the way it works. And so today's, picture, today's text gives us a picture of that. And so we're going to venture in. So I want to invite you to bring your sorrow and bring your skepticism into this. If you received a bulletin on your way in, this passage is, I believe, printed in there, but it's Mark chapter 5. If you want to follow along on uh, a Bible that you've brought with you, it's Mark 5, verses 21 through 43. And it says this. I'm going to talk about it as we go. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. 
And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, he is, he's popular. He, he's kind of famous, in fact. And you see it here. Great crowds gather when he steps out of the boat onto shore. He's, he's a little bit of a celebrity because he has performed miracles. He's a powerful teacher. And he's awakened hope in people. People are, are allowing themselves to, to kind of get excited about the idea that maybe there's somebody who is here in the name of the Lord. And Jairus is this wealthy, respected leader in the community. But what he does here, this posture tells us he falls at the feet of Jesus. And what this is telling us is he's coming in sincerity. He's not coming as a respected leader in the community. He's coming as a dad. He's coming as a dad and he's pleading for his daughter, his little girl. Because what's happened is Jesus has somehow awakened, the stories about Jesus have awakened hope in Jairus. And so in this moment, he's, he's risking to ask Jesus something that runs really deep. The text goes on. A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. That's a great word. Thronged about him. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So a new character enters the scene. If you read Leviticus 15, 25 to 28, uh, that passage pretty graphically tells us about this condition, and it tells us that her condition makes her ceremonially unclean to the point that everything she touches, clothing, furniture, other people, become unclean too. And to be ceremonially unclean in that culture basically made her effectively a ghost. She was a socially dead person. She was there in body, but she was not really there. And on top of that, you see this passage, there's just insult added to injury here. Because on top of that, she spent everything she had to be healed, and it's all come to nothing And so now she's not only still sick, but she doesn't have any resources either. All she really has is just a pretty expensive failure. And she sees Jesus in the crowd. And she's got the same kind of hope in her that Jairus has. The text goes on. She'd heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment For she said, if if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around, And yet you ask, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. 
And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So now, this is a story of two daughters, isn't it? Daughter, your faith has made you well. The text goes on. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Okay. If you're Jairus, how are you going to feel about Jesus now healing this woman with the issue of blood? Because you could look at this and you could say, she delayed Jesus. I mean, in actuality, we see that it was Jesus' choice. He's the one who stopped. He's the one who turned around and said, who touched me? He's the one who pressed in and had the conversation. But wouldn't you think, wouldn't there be a part of you that would at least struggle with the feeling that this woman with the issue of blood kept Jesus from making it to his house on time? Is this how God works? If you're somebody right now who is struggling with doubt in Christ's ability to meet you in your sorrow, listen to what happens next. Because there's an important, vital principle for us here. The text goes on. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion of people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. They laughed at him because they know what death looks like. And he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So now it's Peter, James, John, Jesus, mom and dad, six people. And they are standing in the saddest place in the entire world. The text goes on. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Or it's a very kind of affectionate thing. It's kind of honey, get up. And immediately the girl got up. And began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. The simplicity and the tenderness of these two words, honey, get up. And the dead girl lives. If you've ever woken a sleeping child, it 
it's that. It's, it's an intimate experience, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a tender moment. And that's what Jesus does here. He wakes a sleeping child. I want to unpack this by naming two truths that this passage reveals and then conclude with two applications. And we're going to go quickly with this. But if you're somebody who guards your heart from hope, for fear that God is going to disappoint you, and you can call it that, consider these two truths. The first truth is this. God is not constrained by time. He's not. God labors to tell us that his timing is not our timing. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. And it's impossible math, but it's the kind of impossible math that's meant to encourage us. Because what it means is our perceived deadlines might pass. And from our perspective, you know, like, don't bother the teacher, the girl is already dead. That can happen from our perspective, but that is no constraint to God. And it doesn't constrain him from doing exactly what he means to do. With God, it is never too late. So that's the first principle. God is not constrained by time. And the second, and this is vital, and it's so obvious, you may feel like it doesn't need to be said, and yet it's profound, and it's this. What God does for somebody else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you. When God blesses somebody else, do you ever feel that because he did that, there's just nothing left for you? What God does for this bleeding woman has no bearing on his ability to attend to Jairus' need. So we're, we're kind of talking about comparison here, right? Where we, we feel like, well... God did something for somebody else, and that means then he won't do something for me. You can't compare your situation to somebody else's as if what God has done for somebody else has anything to do with what he means to do for you. He knows what you need. That's what Jesus tells us. And so those are the two principles. God isn't constrained by time, and what God does for somebody else has no bearing on his ability to do something for you. So the the application points, the two, two ways to move toward hope practically are these. The first is, so because those things are true, move toward Jesus in whatever condition you're in. Whatever condition you're in, move to him and do it in the context of community. In other words, don't withdraw into yourself, away from him and away from others. It's easy for us to think that Jesus doesn't want to deal with us until we've kind of got our stuff together, right? We've, we, we know we're a mess, we really need something from Jesus. We've got a little work to do before we can even come and ask him. Sometimes our affliction and our addiction and our sorrow and our past, oh, our past, you know, your, your past is the voice that says, you don't know what I've done and what I've done is what I am. Sometimes we look at those things and we think that they're so big that we can't imagine how we could ever deal with it. And so it's a mercy whenever Jesus moves us into a place where all we can do is what Jairus and this woman did, and that is turn to him. 
And the reality is we're never not in that position. All we ever really can do is turn to him. We forget that, though. But you may feel like your situation precludes you from knowing Jesus. But Jesus' response to the woman assures us that in our desperation, the best thing we can do is seek Jesus. Even in our most clean, our most undesirable condition, move toward Jesus and he will not turn you away. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not extinguish. I mean, let's just think about this bleeding woman for a moment because we come to Jesus desperate and we come to him needy. But when the unclean woman came to Jesus, she touched him. But when she did, look what happened. She didn't make him unclean. Instead, the opposite happened. His power took away her impurity. And then he stopped. He stopped to acknowledge the moment. Why? I think for at least two reasons. The first is to make sure that she knew that her faith hadn't just made her clean, but it had made her a daughter. So he wanted her to know, you and I have a relationship. And I think the second reason he did it was to make sure everybody else also knew that she was no longer what they thought she was. She was clean now. And this is what happens when Jesus heals us. He restores. So that's the first practical application is move toward Jesus in whatever condition you're in and do it in the context of community and don't withdraw into yourself. The second is, and this one's hard, it takes, this takes hope, it takes trust, is in prayer, enter with him into your rooms of sorrow and death, those sacred places of grief where maybe the way you've been trying to manage them is to kind of close that door and lock it and never go in there. What Jesus does with Jairus is he takes him into that room. See, Jairus' hope is awakened by his desperation. His friends tell him, don't, don't bother him anymore. She's gone. But Jesus intervenes and says, I'm the author of life. She's not gone. I can wake her up. See, Jairus had come with a portion of hope. But at this point, his willingness to really hope gets tested in ways that he can't anticipate. So let's think about that scene, just like we did with the bleeding woman. Let's let our mind go into this scene, because what Jesus does is he asks Jairus and his wife to go with him to the girl's bedside, to stand there with him. And so they, they do that. They, they, they enter this room that holds their deepest sorrow. And they do it with the promise that he's going to turn their mourning into joy. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the promise. This is the promise of Jesus. It may not happen in this life. But this is the promise of the gospel, that our sorrow is turned to joy. 
We have rooms like this in our lives and in our hearts, don't we? Places that we, that we, that we hold as sacred because they house pain. And we're afraid to hope for them to be healed. And so we, we, just, we just do what we can to keep our distance. What is it for you? What is that room? To enter into the hope that Christ offers us is to follow him into our places of deepest pain, acknowledging even through tears that Jesus is no stranger to places like these. He isn't. He is, as Isaiah says, our man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The bleeding woman and Jairus, they both come to Jesus and they have these immediate problems, these things that are happening right now, right in this moment. But those immediate problems speak to a deeper level of brokenness. And this side of glory, there is no shortage of sad things. But the healing that Jesus gives them is also just an immediate healing that draws a picture of a much greater, perfect, ultimate healing that is the destiny of every child of God. And because this is so, the call for us is to draw near to him in our sorrow now. So don't numb yourself. But through prayer, scripture, and community, drink from that fountain of truth that Jesus is with us in our sorrow and he's mighty to save. It's not too late for you to do this. He's, he's got you and he loves you, and you can rest in that, and you can trust him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, this passage reminds us that there's a lot of heart in Scripture. If we read these stories and we think as humans, as, as people, about the, the emotional implication of the details that are given to us on the page as we think about the relationship between Jairus and his little girl, his falling at the feet of Jesus as somebody who is a respected leader. Lord, we know that there's this, there's a unique way that parents relate to kids. Even as I'm hearing the kids coming back into the room now, I think it was Tim Keller who, who said that the only person who dares wake the king at three in the morning for a glass of water as a child, that, that you, you, you know us in a very particular way as, as children, and you attend to us in that way. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We, we, we repent and we confess that we're people who, who try to guard ourselves against hurt by also guarding ourselves against hope, and we ask that you would teach us how to not do that, but how to trust in you and how to walk in hope knowing that you are greater than everything that could ever afflict us and that our destiny with you is one of perfect peace and calm and joy. And we thank you for this in your matchless name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well.